0: My people, he told them, were in Texas 100 years before Sam Houston. That wetback from Tennessee.
1: (laughs) You know why I love that? Because that's what we need more of today. Too many of us Latinos, I'm sorry to say this, I, I spend time on my show doing this, we settle for scraps. We deserve so much more than just scraps. I, I see my compatriots, my peers, my, my, me, my hermanos, and they argue things like, well, you know, we have to stay in our place to a certain extent too. And you know what, no, <laughs> we, we, here's this lawyer talking to the highest court in the land, the highest court in the world. And he turns to this guy and he says, let me tell you who the original wetbacks were. It wasn't us. It was the guys who took over our land. Wow. Here on Rick Sanchez News, we spend a lot of time talking about some of the things that are happening right now with Latinos in the United States. And we know what it is, right? We talk about Latino truths. We talk about the myths you know, that we're all rapists and we're all come here as criminals and we're gonna take your job and, you know, we're gonna have our way with your daughter and all these horrible things that are said. We know what we talk about in the fact that we are underrepresented across the board. We're 20% of the population of the United States and we're lucky if we can get 2% of the representation on cable news or in media or in Hollywood. So we know all this, right? So we know that somehow we are still to a second, to a certain extent, a class apart. And it bothers us. But, you know, we just keep on keeping on because that's who we are. It's in our DNA. We just work. You get up and you do it again. And that's why if Latinos in the United States, if we Latinos in the United States were a country, we would be the fifth largest GDP in the world. OK. Yes. As you know, we Latinos in the United States, we just passed Brazil. We just passed Great Britain and we just passed France. Now we're only behind If we were a country, we would only be behind the United States of America, China, Japan, and Germany. Those are the only bigger countries economically than we are. And yet, here in our own country, where we live as Americans, we are criticized, we are tormented, we are taken for granted. And I say this with a smile in my face, because I know in the end, we're not sitting around going, oh, woe is me, poor little guy, like some other groups sometimes do, because it's just not who we are. But the only reason I say this The only reason I say this to you is because there was a time when it was worse and we forget this, you know, you hear all these stories all the time about what it was like to be an African-American in the United States. And my God, it was horrible to be treated as a second-class citizen if you're African American. And we hear all the time about what the Japanese went through during World War II. And my God, that must've been horrible for our Japanese brothers. But what about us? What about the story of a group that's bigger than all of the Japanese in America and bigger than all of the African-Americans in America? What about us? What about our story? What was it like to be a Latino in the 1950s, and the 1940s, hell, even in the 1960s and stretching into part of the 1970s? You know what it was like? This is what it was like. Listen to this woman's voice as she describes this for us. Go.
2: Life in the 1950s was very difficult for Hispanics. We were considered second-rate. We were not considered intelligent. We were considered invisible. It was overt discrimination. And not just you can't belong to my country club type, you know, but uh, the, the real rough type.
1: Yeah.
2: In theaters, in swimming pools, even in some public parks, We were segregated, Uh, something, something awful, really.
0: It got to the point where uh, State Restaurant Association put out a sign that said, no Mexicans,
1: niggers, or dogs allowed. Oh, my God. And listen, I apologize for the wording that was used there. Um, But from a historic standpoint, it's the only word we can use to make the point, to make you understand whether you're a Latino or not, and you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, to make you understand what it was like. People don't know this. Too many people don't know this. You know, they say, well, African-Americans weren't allowed to use regular bathrooms. Well, neither were Latinos. Well, neither were Latinos. I mean, I'm about to introduce you to the guy who has put together the... the uh, The story, the documentary that you must watch, because he takes you through this story. And it's not just a, woe is me, gosh, things were really bad. He actually takes you through how it changed, how it changed, how Latinos were finally able to get civil rights in the United States. What a beautiful story. Before I bring him on, here's here's another clip, just so you get a feel for what we're talking about, about. Just how bad segregation was for Latinos in the United States back in the 1940s and 1950s and into the
0: 1960s. Go. Segregation was widespread, enforced not by written laws, as was the case for African Americans, but by a rigid social code.
3: It was very clear that the social isolation was a perfectly symmetrical system, one that hermetically sealed Mexicans and blacks away from whites in all the daily aspects of life.
1: Good gosh. We're going to play more of those clips. we got about five more that we're going to play. It's from the uh, documentary that uh, is called A Class Apart. A Class Apart. Remember it. Write it down. If you're driving, whatever, you know, put it in your phone. A Class Apart. Must watch. It's must, must. Bring your kids. Bring your family. Show it to them. I mean, this is in many ways an eye-opener for so many of us who take for granted what we've been through and what we've had to do to get where we are today. So when I criticize what's happening in Los Angeles, where literally in a town where 50% of the population is now only gonna have one representative, one elected official for an entire town where they're 50% of the population, you should think, what can I do to change that? Like the people in this documentary did in their moment in time. Instead of going around saying that, you know, we're going to eat our own, like we, I think, oftentimes tend to do as Latinos. It's the old crab story, right? Oh, cangrejos. Cangrejos in a bucket. They just climb over each other to get out rather than finding a way to build a bridge so that they can all rise together. His name is Carlos Sandoval. Carlos Sandoval is joining us now, and he is absolutely freaking brilliant. I mean... The work that this guy has done, not just with this documentary, but with many others that we're going to be telling you about is unmatched, I think, in so many ways. And uh, he's, you know, Emmy-nominated filmmaker. Uh, He's a former attorney. He's now a journalism professor at Columbia University. So he's like me. I'm a journalist. Wow. There's two Latinos who are journalists. Careful. There might be some some go wrong here in this conversation. (laughs) uh carlos sandoval thanks for joining us man how are you doing carlos
4: good rick thank you Un gran placer. and i really appreciate that introduction uh but i have to say extend your your kind words to all my team that put together uh these films uh i've had the pleasure of working with extraordinary people and uh you know being able to 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 work in, in that in that way collegially has been fantastic well but said. thank you and you're right there's so much that people don't know about our history uh, in the united states and and, um, and mm-hmm. the, the segments that, that you that you showed, and I assume we're going to be showing as we go along, uh, were important to me in making this film. I remember having discussions both with with the presenter, that was a, a PBS of the GBH in Boston, and with my with my colleagues, um, arguing for the need to take this detour down history to establish how what kind of segregation existed, the kind of discrimination that existed at that time because I had to insist that people did not know know about it. So I really appreciate your highlighting it right now.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we need a Roots for Latinos, you know? Roots, for those of you who don't know, was a series that came out in the 1970s or 80s or something like that, that made America recognize just how difficult conditions have been for African-Americans when they were treated as second-class citizens, There is some of that. Uh, PBS has a wonderful series. I think it's called Latinos in America. I think it's like eight parts. And it also takes you through documentaries that are very similar to the one that Carlos did as well. Uh, But they're few and far between, I got to tell you. And there's there's not this awakening in America where people now understand the history of Latinos. In fact, most people don't know much about us. They think that we all got here last week. (laughs) and that none of us speak English and that we're sitting around watching Telemundo and Univision on telenovelas and stuff, when in actuality, we are the fabric of this country in so many ways. Oh, and by the way, did I mention we actually, in many ways, got here even before? We were here before the pilgrims arrived. That's another important part of the story, but I'm not going to bore you with my details. We're here to talk to uh, Carlos. Here's, before we go to Carlos, here's one more clip. This is clip three this is, uh, I think we, we called this Mexican shame or dirty Mexicans. Listen to this.
0: Second-class treatment exacted a heavy toll.
1: They were always referring to us as dirty Mexicans. They called us pepper belly. They called us greasers. They called us wet back. They made us feel ashamed to be a Mexican-American. Made us feel ashamed to be a Mexican-American. Carlos Sandoval is the... Uh, is the uh, person who created that uh, documentary you're hearing from there? What? Let's start with this. What drove you to want to do this magnificent piece of work?
4: Well, th- th- thank you. Um, you know, several things, Rick. Uh, you 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 talk about that that segment where we talk about make, they made you feel ashamed of being me- about Mex- being Mexican American. I grew up in in Southern California, outside of Los Angeles, um, and I grew up in the shadow of all that we we see in this film. I grew up in an area where you know swimming pools used to be Mexicans and blacks could not swim in the swimming pool until Tuesday night because they would we uh, cleaned the pool out the next day Wednesday for 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 the, for the white population you know schools were were segregated in southern california and and, and texas until 1948 um, you know that and i grew up on in the mexican part of town of Navadio that was literally across the, across the tracks um, so you know that sense of being less than permeated everything that we did and who we were. Um, and you know that that was a very, very real sensation. So I I I feel an obligation to tell those stories to portray uh to portray that. Specifically with the class of part, uh what drew me to it was um I was actually on the subway in New York City on a Saturday morning reading the New York Times and there was uh, a, a an editorial piece uh by Carolyn Curiel um that uh that talked about the Hernandez versus Texas case. It was the 50th anniversary uh, coming up that year. Um, and so I, I did not know about this case. I was attracted to it. I was I, The whole point of the story is our identity, who we are, are we black, are we white, are we other? Um, how we treated the inconsistencies of, of what we were. Uh, that was put on trial before the Supreme Court. So for me, as a a sometime lawyer, uh, the idea that you actually have uh, the judiciary system, the the apex of it, coming in and discussing who we are in the United States, I found absolutely fascinating. What I I didn't know when I went into it on this intellectual basis was the characters that we would find, including Gus Garcia, and we can discuss Gus and Carlos Gardena and the other uh, lawyers who were part of this in, in a moment.
1: You know, it's interesting because the argument, and here's where it gets complex, and now we're going to get into the how this happened. The argument is that Latinos were not Black. So to be told, you are not Black, so you can't ask for the civil rights that Blacks are asking for because you're not Black. However, they were treated the same way that Blacks were treated back then. Blacks argued that they should not have to go to the back of the bus. Latinos had to go to the back of the bus. Blacks argued Latinos, uh, blacks argued, they shouldn't have to have a separate bathroom. Latinos had a separate bathroom. Blacks argued that they should have a jury of their peers. Latinos didn't have a jury of their peers. So, in essence, the argument at the time was, well, you're not Black, but they were treated as Black. So. It's a complex argument that suddenly this group of lawyers, these Latino lawyers, had to bring to the nation's forefront, to the courts. And the courts laughed yeah. them out and said, What are you talking about? You're, you're fine. Shut the hell up. You're not at least you're not you're at least you're not a Negro, probably, right? I mean, that's almost the argument they were making, as absurd and as nasty and as offensive, you know, as that may sound. So all of a sudden, one day, there was a crime that was committed where a young Mexican dude got pissed off at somebody else and he shot him and he killed him. And he was obviously guilty as hell because everybody saw it. It was in plain view. But now he goes to court and they seat a jury of white kind of, you know, very non-Latino type people. And they're the ones who are going to judge him. It doesn't matter whether he's guilty or innocent. The fact of the matter is, why is he being judged by people who are not his peers, despite the fact that the Constitution says you've got to be judged by a jury of your peers? So these lawyers start arguing this, and they lose and they lose and they lose and they lose and they're being laughed out. But they're creating a proper argument. And that is in many ways what this documentary is about. So um, set that down picture draw make make me that picture Carlos I tried to explain it as best I can you do it far better in your document no, and
4: you did, you, you, did a, you did a beautiful job of setting it out but it's even more complex and more perverse <laughs> than you laid out if that's possible <laughs> um the issue was that uh, Mexican Americans were considered to be white for pr- certain purposes but not white in terms of the, in terms of the treatment huh. um, so and we became white by law under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which it um, over, you know, swaths, large swaths of what happened been Mexico after the Mexican-American War. Um, and even though it was not part of the Mexican-American War per se, Texas, which had succeeded earlier, um, that became part of, part, of the, part of the United States after 1848. Um, and, but under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, Mexican-Americans were considered to be citizens but at that time only only whites could be citizens so therefore we had to have been white in order to be citizens uh what the lawyers in um in Hernandez versus Texas were arguing arguing brilliantly and it was an argument created by Carlos Cadena was okay uh if we're white then we should have that that uh, uh, you know we we ha- we should be treated as white but in fact we're not being treated that way therefore to say that we are that we are being tried by a jury of our peers just because they're white doesn't hold. We are distinctly different. We are a class apart. And it was that argument that the state of Texas rejected at its highest level, and was taken from the uh, that was the te- Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, and it was taken from there to the Supreme Court. And That's- in contrast, to the court that we have these days, um, in many ways, I think you can trace a lot of the reaction to the. To, to to the Supreme Court back to a case I around this in the 1950s um we had uh rank I'm sorry we we, we had uh, Earl Warren who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court a Republican um who had been the governor of California and he uh but because he he was from California um and he had experienced he had seen what had happened in California mm-hmm. two Japanese Americans two Mexican Americans, he could bring in the insight and understand uh the arguments that, that was being that were being made. And so he extended the protection uh of the Fourteenth Amendment to Mexican Americans. And this case was two weeks before Brown versus Board of Education. Oh, so wow. this was the first of a series of Supreme Court decisions that would come out on civil rights. Here's and here's so actually-
1: I, I I want to interrupt you for a moment. We got a clip that speaks to this white versus non-white and if i'm going to be white why am i not being treated like other people who are white and are uh not latino so here's a clip four guys
2: mexican americans were fighting to be treated as if they were white but the irony here is that the texas courts seized on their claim to be white not to treat them fairly but to continue to defend this practice of unfair mistreatment. I think many Mexican Americans were afraid. What would happen if we weren't considered white? How do we know we're not gonna be forced or pushed to identify with the black race at a time when black people are fundamentally denied so many basic rights? But there's also the element of racism of the belief among some Mexican Americans that blackness is inferior. So there's an element of racism and there's an element of fear of Jim Crow segregation.
1: This is so fascinating what she just said. Listen to her words, listen to what she just said. She just said, the option we're given is not a good option. So they're saying to Latinos in the United States, in this case in particular, Texas, because that's where the largest congregation of Latinos is. Oh, fine. So you don't want to be considered white? Great. Then we're going to consider you black. And she's saying, but wait, at that time, to be black meant even worse or as bad as what we have now. So we're getting nothing out of this deal. I mean, what a fascinating circumstance for a group of Latinos to find themselves in and for them to then suddenly coalesce the energy to fight through this. And by the way, Carlos will tell you, you know how they did it? They decided to make this case that he was telling you about a little while ago. And they literally went with un plato, you know, with a plate. And they collected 50 cents, a dollar, $5. All the Latinos who lived in Texas were tired of being treated like crap. And the poorest of the poor, and even those who maybe weren't so poor, collected their pennies, and they got just enough money to be able to pay a group of lawyers to be able to fight this case for them. And that's what this case was that went to the Supreme Court that said Latinos are being treated like second-class citizens, and this has to end. The freaking Supreme Court of the United States, Carlos. Wow. How inspirational.
4: Incredibly inspirational. And I'm glad you so, so appreciated the fact that you... Point out the way they collected that money. It was un um you know what people could. We we actually show in the film the receipt, one of the receipts where they have listed the name of the people and the dollar or two that they gave to the cause. But it really it really took that. Um, it, this was this was something that was scrappy. Um, it was by the seat of your pet pants. It was uh, lawyers who were strategically brilliant because they'd been looking for a case like this for a long time. Um, and then they got the support of the, the community uh, to do it. Um, and, 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 and I'm also very glad that you that you included that excerpt uh, with uh, Lisa Ramos in there, uh, Professor Lisa Ramos, because it really, um, it's the crux of the issue, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and she talks about uh, the fears of being, if we claim not to be white, then we're going to be less than, and we're going to be identified more like blacks, and that's a risk. Right. But she also talks about the colorism that exists with our community. You know, we didn't want to we don't want to we don't want to be considered black. And so there's so much texture and nuance in what she's saying in there and the jeopardy in which these these lawyers were, were, were taking themselves because they didn't know if they won this case where they're actually uh, in some ways damaging their position in society. Uh, so it's it's a very, very complex issue. And that passage just begins to impact or at least stress, stress out some of the issues that were involved. So
1: they go to the Texas court. You've got to listen to me on this story because this is so incredible. (laughs) So these lawyers, these fine, smart Mexican lawyers uh, finally get to a court in Texas where they're going to argue their case. And remember, here's the irony. They're arguing to the court that Latinos in Texas should be treated no different than anyone else, that they shouldn't be a class apart. And they're going to tell the court in this courthouse, in this particular courthouse, we are not being treated Fairly, we are being treated unfairly. We don't get the same rights, Your Honor, that you do. Speaking to this white dude who was a judge back then and all the other people in the courtroom who were white. And then as they're preparing this case and arguing, suddenly they have to go to the bathroom. Like we all have to go to the bathroom. They go to use the facilities in the courtroom. Listen to this. I mean, this is, you can't make this shit up. They need to go to the bathroom in that courtroom And they realize, they're told by the usher when they get outside the courtroom, sorry, you can't use this bathroom. This bathroom is not for Mexicans. This bathroom is not for Latinos. So they go to the basement to use a bathroom that says this is the bathroom for Negroes and Latinos who, you know, who come into this building. Their very case they're making to the court in that courthouse is Latinos are not treated fairly and they end up in a courthouse where there's a bathroom that they can't use because they're Latinos. Here's the clip that explains that. Here it is.
0: During a pause in the proceedings, the Hernandez lawyers sat out a men's room. They found one on the courthouse grounds. But it turned out that there was a
3: problem. The sign said men, but a, a Mexican janitor whispered to them in Spanish that they couldn't use it. And he told them in Spanish that there was another one, hasta para, out out back. And they went downstairs and they find another men's bathroom downstairs with a bathroom sign that says colored men, hombres aquí, men here. Think of the irony of this. In the very courthouse where the state of Texas is arguing that Mexican-Americans are white and therefore an all-white jury can convict a Mexican charged with murder, they can't use the bathroom reserved for whites. This is unbelievable (laughs) and then they go up and they make that argument in front of the judge in
1: Texas and the judge in Texas says, of hell, I mean, it's like, nah, not good enough. I don't, he, it's almost like prejudice, what prejudice? I don't see any prejudice around here. I mean, they could be literally saying, your honor, we're not even use, allowed to use the bathroom, no less being treated equally in a courthouse. And he's like, ah, eh, sorry, you know, I deny your uh, motion, I deny your case, get out of here. Wow, that, that, Carlos, that, all, all that, I can that, say is exactly wow, coño, right. right? I mean, go- that, wow.
4: That's exactly right. Um, We filmed in that town of Edna, which is a lovely little town. I mean, beautiful little, little main street, a historic section. Uh, But when we were there filming, um, we went into uh, just a cafe and uh, the young uh, Latina waitress, uh, uh, she asked what we were doing. We told her we're making this film about this period. And she suddenly went silent on us and said, oh, be careful um and um, wow. we found out from other people who told us you have to be careful there was one time when i was inter- when i went in to talk to uh, the son of a of one of the jur- of, of someone who who was a witness in this case a woman very brave woman Paulina rosas who talked about the school discrimination her son had, had suffered and the son who is now a head of a federal agency in this town um did not want any photographs taken at that point Uh, We continued our discussion. Uh, We had our discussion very much in private inside. When we emerged in the street, we're standing there, the two of us, two Latinos, talking. And this big Cadillac convertible comes by with a big, fat Anglo guy with a cigar, literally. And he just stared at us. And I was kind of taken aback by that. And so uh, I thought, but I'm just making this up. So the other, Chris Rosa says to me, did you notice that? That's what we put up with here all the time is that kind of intimidation uh you know and so this stuff is not in the past this stuff continues to exist and this when we were talking before about being made to feel less than it's um it's something that sometimes is hard to exactly point out to but when you're the recipient of it and this is why it was it took both Chris and I to uh, uh to confirm for each other, this is what had happened in that moment. Um, And in that town, you still have uh, the cemetery, which is white, black, and brown. It's still divided in three. You can still see those divisions. Now, a lot of that is custom now. It's no longer a forced segregation, but you still have that kind of of, of intimidation that goes on in, in, in some of these smaller towns.
1: What a fascinating story. So now we get to the point where we actually, as I said, they lost the case in Texas and then they appealed and they lost the appeal. And finally, they ran out of places to take the argument. Only thing left was the Supreme Court of the United States of America. The Supreme Court of the United States of America had never heard a case presented by Latinos, by Mexicans, no less Mexican lawyers. So this was like, Wow, are we really going to do this? This is crazy. Let's, this is like going to uh, Yankee Stadium, you know, and playing with uh, the big boys. This is this is the real deal. And they're going in there to the Supreme Court of the United States to make this argument that Latinos are being treated like second-class citizens and Latinos deserve civil rights. However, it would be very difficult to argue a case in the Supreme Court. First of all, they have to accept the case, which they deny 95% of the stuff that's put in front of them. Second of all, it's a big rigmarole. It's expensive. You got to get there. You got to present the stuff. I mean, this is going to be a lot of money for a lot of people who at the time in Texas don't have that kind of money. They don't, it's not like these are not Rockefellers, right? So they have to collect the money and then the lawyers have to fly there and then they have to do this. So, But finally, they're before the Supreme Court. Here's clip six.
0: Fueled by indignation. Garcia offered the justices a brief irony-laced history lesson. My people, he told them, were in Texas a hundred years before Sam Houston, that wetback from Tennessee.
1: (laughs) You know why I love that? Because that's what we need more of today. Too many of us Latinos, I'm sorry to say this, I, I spend time on my show doing this, we settle for scraps. We deserve so much more than just scraps. I, I see my compatriots, my peers, my, my, me, my hermanos, and they argue things like, well, you know, we have to stay in our place to a certain extent too. And you know what? No, <laughs> we, here's this lawyer talking to the highest court in the land, the highest court in the world. And he turns to this guy and he says, let me tell you who the original wetbacks were. It wasn't us. It was the guys who took over our land. Wow. You would have think at that point that the the judge would have said, that's insulting. And are you saying that about Americans and that the case closed, right? No, it continues. And then it gets even more interesting. Uh, Take us through that, if you would, Carlos.
4: Well, that was uh, that argument that the Lord they're referring to there is Gus Garcia. Uh, Mm -hmm. Gus was a brilliant, stunning looking guy. Um, You know, one of the few Mexican-Americans to graduate uh, you, you, uh, University of Texas Austin. Go to, go on to the law school. Um, uh, bedazzled people. Uh, he actually was invited and spoke uh, before the then brand new United Nations, um, and he was he was he was brilliant. Um, uh, and and Gus and Gus was also a, a country lawyer as well as being a, a very um, uh, a sophisticated lawyer. Uh, but he would represent people who would pay him with chickens, you know. Um it was <laughs> it, and he was he was out doing this kind this kind of and he, he, he worked on the case that would go on to desegregate schools in uh in Texas. Wow. Um Gus was flawed, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Well actually actually let me come up to let me Yeah, come yeah, L- right here let,
1: let me help you with that okay. because this okay. is a fascinating story. I'll set it up for you. Gus had a little bit of a problem, like you know, a lot of people do. A little bit of an addiction problem. His particular addiction was alcohol. As my mother would say, no puedes la botella. He couldn't put the bottle down. And the night before that big presentation before the Supreme Court, Gus went out again, as he often did, and he got toasted. And uh, he was drunk because he was, I hate to say it, but if his family is around, they understand he was a bit of an alcoholic, maybe a bit of a drunk. However, he was unbelievably masterful and in, in rhetoric. So his colleagues, by the way, he spent most of the money on booze. <laughs> so now they're, they're oh, short. What about booze on a hotel
4: room? On a hotel room, but go ahead.
1: Right. I mean, so now, yeah, he, oh, he went out and got a hotel room too?
4: No, no, no. They, he, got a, he got a fancy suite for them that the rest of them <laughs> felt was not necessary. But Gus wanted felt he, they should have a certain amount of status. So, so he, he spends the their money. He's drunk. Fancy, yeah.
1: Comes back, I don't know, two o'clock in the morning, and the rest of the guys go, oh, my God, we're done. We're about to go stand in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. And the guy who's going to represent our case, our lead attorney, is drunk off his ass on the floor vomiting. (laughs) So what do we do? And they had to clean him up somehow, get coffee in him, and hope he could sober up well enough to go stand in front of Earl Warren and argue for Latinos in the United States as second-class citizens, and they must have thought, oh, no, this this, this ain't going to fly. However, Carlos, tell us the rest of the story.
4: Well, um, to go back to the clip, that, you're absolutely right in all that. Gus uh, went out on a bender that night. Um, <laughs> a bender. I he, love that uh, word. One of uh, the lawyers' son, Mike, Mike Herrera, told us that you know they were plying they put on a huge pot of coffee they were plying Gus with coffee they <laughs> shoved him into the shower con ti ropa clothes and everything uh <laughs> to sew over with a cold shower what a movie. um and then they appear the next day before the supreme court and Carlos Cadena who was much more soft spoken but actually the more intellectual of the two and was the architect of the argument uh, of a class apart um Car- uh, Carlos starts the argument and he's salient through it beautifully. He's being methodical. He's laying out the case. And at one point, Justice Frankfurter says about Mexican-Americans, Mexican they call them greasers down there, don't they? At which point, that's when Gus gets pissed off and stands up and says, Your Honor, that line that you hear, uh, let me tell you, uh, Sam Houston was a, 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 was a wet bag to most of us real Texans. And he goes on. And he's so brilliant that there's a time limit on when you can speak before the Supreme Court. Right. Gus goes over his time limit. He stops, looks up at the bench, and Earl Warren says, "Mr. Garcia, please continue." Wow. And Gus goes on. Now, legend has it, we don't know for sure that he went on and spoke for an additional 16 minutes. It could have been much less, but um, you know he. Came he went through there and he sailed through that so beautifully and so magnificently in that moment, coming back from his stupor and meeting that moment, which resonated for the rest of us in terms of our rights today.
1: And that Earl Warren doing. in the Supreme Court of the United States is sitting there spellbound listening to this guy. And when he tries to finish, they say, no, don't stop. Keep going. Wow. I yeah. mean... Wow. And and these are guys who every other court they'd raise their arguments to had kind of laughed them out of the courtroom and said, what are you talking about? You know, get out of here. Greaser, so to speak, or wetback or whatever other ugly term you want to have been used in the past to refer to people like you and me. So what what an incredible, incredible moment. Here's a little bit of the wrap up. Uh, Let's listen.
2: Cut seven. Hernandez versus Texas belongs in the pantheon of great civil rights cases, indeed of great American cases. But even more important, it belongs in the pantheon of great moments in American history. This is a moment when a people long regarded as inferior organize and demand equal treatment and succeed in that demand. This is an inspirational moment in American history, a moment in which equality is demanded and achieved.
1: As I'm listening to that, once again, I'm getting goosebumps. I I, I feel goosebumps right now, listening to yeah. that moment in history about my people, our people, your people, uh, Carlos, and 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 nobody knows this story. Nobody knows that we too had a civil rights moment. And needless to say, you can obviously get the gist of it from that cut that we just shared with you, but the Supreme Court decided in its infinite wisdom that these these greasers, these lowly Mexican lawyers who were there with a couple of pennies in their pocket, one of whom couldn't stop putting the bottle down, were right, that their argument was just, and that the only American thing to do was to stop treating Latinos, Mexicans from Texas in particular in this case, like they were second-class citizen. And tell us, tell us, tell me, Carlos, what did the Supreme Court do?
4: Well, the Supreme Court uh said that uh that that they that Mexican Americans uh were could should be tried by a jury of their peers and that their peers should include could include Mexican Mexican uh Americans on that jury. Hmm. Um one of the things that that the um that was established by the Hernandez lawyers was that this county where in Jackson County where the where the original trial for the murder took place, there had not been any Mexican Americans serving on a jury whether grad or pedigree, jury in, in the previous I forget 25, 50 years. Um, and so that discrimination had been pervasive. Uh, again, the lawyers were strategic. they were trying to figure out what rights do we want to assert. They've yes. already taken care of education. Um, in terms of schools, they uh, are taking care of, 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 of racial covenants on, on homes. So now it was about uh, taking care of juries. Now the question arises: Why juries? You know, we we see that as pain in the ass to serve on a jury these days. Right. We may not view it as something that we really want to do. And why would why would an Anglo community object to that? Mm-hmm. Well, think about it in terms from the perspective. of, I mean, how else how else are you going to get equal, equal justice? If you're not, if you don't have representation in that jury box, hmm. we see that constantly in terms of the statistics that come out with, with regards to capital punishment, for example, with African-Americans, where you have all white juries, you have a much higher rate of course. death penalty yeah. than you do when you have, when you have some, some, uh, uh, some black people on, on, on the jury box. So there's that point of view of representation, but also from the point of view of what it means sort of more culturally. Angles did not want, they felt that they did did not want to have a Mexican sitting in judgment of them, Hmm. sitting in power over them. And so that, for me, is part of the potency of this and why it's so important for all of us to participate now. I mean, this was a right that we're excluded from and we fought for, but we don't recognize it when we get that jury summons. So I think that we all have to recognize that next time we we, we see that come in and and complete our our civic duty.
1: That's interesting because we're making the argument that Latinos were definitely treated as second-class citizens, just like others have been treated historically in the United States. So they're making the argument we don't want to be treated as second-class citizens. And we're going to look at a lot of things, but one of the most important things we can look at is the Constitution says we are to be judged by a jury of our peers, And we are not being judged by a jury of our peers. Therefore, we are not citizens of the United States. We are not afforded the rights of citizens of the United States. Until you change that, Your Honor, we are not afforded the rights of citizens of the United States. Therefore, we are, in essence, not receiving our civil rights and we are being discriminated against. It's a basic tenet, and it goes right at the foundation of what it is to be an American. So I never would have thought it this way until I watched you, this, your documentary to understand why this particular need manifests itself with such universality for what we are today as Latinos. I get it.
4: Exactly. Right? And you, you put it so precisely, I can't add anything to that, Rick. That's exactly the crux of it. And this that, that's why this case... Which um, which was a foundation then to go on and expand further rights uh, for Mexican-Americans and ultimately Latinos uh, was foundational. So, yeah,
1: it's so important that we get not just, you know, uh, folks who may have lived that folks who may be old enough to remember it. But somehow, I think just like our friends, the Jews uh, constantly telling people how important their history is, and just like our African-American friends are always trying to get their kids and others to understand their history because it makes up our DNA and it's a better way for us to all understand each other. So just as the Japanese, with the horrible things that happened to them after uh, World War II, and I could go on and on, I mean, you know, uh, throughout civilization, but, but there's a unique thing for us Latinos in the United States, and I want my children, I want my son, who I introduced you to a little while ago, to know this story. And I'm not sure they do, uh, but I think it's necessary that they understand this because I think it frames us better to understand each other and to be able to share our stories with others because we are Americans as well, right?
4: No, I mean, you're you're, you're completely right. We we need to understand American history in all its texture, nuance, and richness um, and complexity. Mm -hmm. Um, And we as Latino community need to understand um, our history, because we do come from so many different countries. Uh, uh, we've arrived in this country, uh, or we the, this country arrived to us, as is the case of my family, um, at different points along that history. Um, and and but but we in in the end, uh, we're being treated in many ways the same, which is still subject to some discrimination, still subject to yeah. some uh, speculative uh, mistreatment, not speculative mistreatment, but some speculation as to who we are. You know, those those, those, those little issues, issues that come up Uh I get asked, where are you from? You know, those those sorts of things that remind us that we're not fully American in some odd way. But uh, I think that we as Latinos do need to understand our unique perspective, our unique contribution uh, to this history. And, and you're also right. Rick, uh, a lot of people don't know this history. Even my nephew the other day, who is now a father, um, I uh, was telling him about this and he was mesmerized and had no idea that this existed. This is a 32-year-old 30 year young man. You know, we, people don't know, and it's important to know to get the context, to understand uh, where we came from and, where, uh, and, and help us make certain that we keep going in a better direction.
1: My friend, Jeff Valdez, who you probably know, is a yeah. director-producer in uh, Hollywood, and he and I talk all the time. I remember one of the first times I met Jeff, he said to me something that will always stay with me. He said, I recently had a guy know, an Anglo guy come up to me and said, go back to your country. (laughs) And I told him that this is my country and that my great, 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 great grandparents were in this country 400 years ago. (laughs) And he looked at me like, huh? And it's that simple. I mean, people who are, you know, the Trujillos, my partner in this venture and my buddy, Jeff Valdez, and maybe people in your family, their ancestors have been in the United States before the United States existed. So how silly for somebody to come up to somebody who's of Mexican descent or whatever and say, "Hey, go back to your country." And, I, and I'm not making fun of them or trying to be mean or anything. It's just that they just they don't know. They
4: just don't know. Yeah, and they should. Yeah. No, the, the, they, they truly don't. And, and in my case, on my father's side of the family, um, you know, probably crossing over in 1600. Uh, along with, you know, not the expedition, you know, we've been around uh, forever, but also in their uh, indigenous blood that's been around here since before. And on my mother's side, Puerto Rican. So, you know, we got crossed over in the Spanish-American War. Uh, You know, we have been here for generations. We have contributed so much to this country. We are a part of it. We are the fabric of it. But that's not going to be recognized unless we explore and examine this history.
1: And the most important thing we need to do is um, not settle for scraps, understand yeah. that history and use it to empower us. Because I see sometimes I've been talking a lot about this case that's going on right now in Los Angeles, for example, where some some Latinas who are in power said some very untoward things and they should be, you know, they should be reprimanded for what they said. But, you know, it's funny how easily and how fast even our own community wants to, you know, banish them. Like, okay, be gone with you. I hate to say it, but Worst, thing has been, worst things have been said. In fact, worst things are said almost daily about us. And there are very few consequences for some of those people who say that. So while I'm not defending some of the things that they said, I am arguing about whether the reaction sometimes looks like we're eating our own once again. Because when this is all said and done, we're going to end up in a city where we're 50% of the population with one council person. One and we're the ones who are saying, yeah, that's the way it should be. No, that's not the way it should be. We should learn from our ancestors who fought the good fight.
4: Agreed in terms of learning from our ancestors. And and I, I just want to, you, you brought up Death Valdez earlier, and I want to, uh, I don't know where we are in our conversation right now, but I do want to point out that uh, the film A Class Apart um, is in development to be made into a narrative major move motion picture Great. Uh, with Eva Longoria as one of the producers on it. Um, it's with a streamer being developed right now. And uh, word has it that maybe Robert Rodriguez would be, um, would be directing it. Which I would love be the Robert. He's a, he's a good,
1: he's a good friend of mine and a good friend of his shows and a yeah. good friend of, so, of Saul Trujillo. He's, he's in our family. Yeah, so.
4: Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and I met actually Robert Russo at an LDC meeting years ago and I handed him a copy of the class of art and uh, we think that even maybe it convinced them to, to to participate in it. But I'm, I'm fearful that the film may, in fact, not be made uh, because of the sort of consolidation that's going on among streamers. Hmm. And as a result of that, the, the less diversity in terms of the product. So um, talk to Saul. Get him to, to put his, his back behind this project because it, it's one that, that's worthy and should be made.
1: He's listening right now. As a matter of fact, I Good guarantee it. So <laughs> you can make the pitch to Saul yourself, <laughs> and if not, so, okay, you, Saul, By the way, you, you know who's one of the uh, one of my one of my m- most ardent uh, listeners of this podcast, and somebody whose uh, judgment and opinion I cherish and value and respect. Um, somebody who's actually much smarter than Saul. Uh, it's his wife, Corrine. So. <laughs>
4: I was going to say it's hard to find anyone smarter than Saul, but I'll, I'll
1: go along with this <laughs> it's his wife. Yeah, she'll be listening to this podcast as well, and I'm sure she'll call me and comment on it because she is, she like me and like you and like so many of us now are looking at the situation as Latinos in America, and we're not, you know, we're not here to say, you know, what oh, was me and you know pobrecitos, you know, that's not that's not our message. Our message is. We have to empower ourselves by understanding who we are and the power of what we have so that we can share it with people so that we can help America as the new mainstream of America become a better country as we move forward. That's all we want. So uh, it's an important message. And man, if anything captures that, it's this documentary. So well done. I'm so looking forward to working you. Uh, Carlos, I'm so looking forward uh, to uh, having more conversations, doing some things together. And th- and this has been great. What a, what a wonderful conversation. I, I feel like we've really hit on some very important things. And I would encourage anybody listening to the sound of my voice right now, I would encourage them to look at this documentary. I saw it on uh, Amazon Prime. I don't know where else it is. I'm sure it's everywhere. But I saw it last night uh, on
4: Amazon yeah, I, I Prime. I think it's also on, 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 I, on iTunes. Um, uh, so you can get it there. But thank you. Thank you, Rick. And it's, it's been a, a great pleasure uh, to be with you and a uh, tremendous conversation. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you, my friend. Again, it's called A Class Apart. Our show, as you know, is called Rick Sanchez News. Every day, we're getting more tens of thousands of people who are clicking in because, hey, we're, we tell Latino truths, we defy Latino myths, and we may be one of the only places in the United States that does that with any currency. So we're on Spotify and Apple and Wherever you get your podcast, and more importantly, please uh, give us a star, leave a review, and send this podcast to a friend and saying, "and say, look, here's somebody who's doing something for us." Because unless we do this together and unify, then you know, in the end, what good is it? You know, that's why I keep saying it's so important for all of us to kind of come together and tell our own truths. That's what we try to do. That's what Carlos has done. And if you happen to be watching us on uh, on the YouTube, as we say. Uh, Subscribe. Subscribe. Thank you, Jerry. Dale, ándale, y como siempre digo, as I always say,
4: vamos con todo. Agua.